You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Okay, we are back for one more segment. We like to call this the wrap-up segment with the one and only awesome Sally Stiglitz from Lilric and Tim Spindler, who runs Lilric. So... Uh, as a wrap-up, talking about the guests who uh, we were fortunate enough to um, interview who were at the conference. And this is a special one. This is, epi- this is episode. This is, this is your 30th um, rendition of the, uh, the annual conference. This is true. Yeah. It didn't arrive or born at the time, but uh, we heard it was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the first one might have been actually when I graduated from library school. <laughs> I wasn't anywhere near Long Island then, so. Um, it was 93, right? 90, I thought it was 92. 92. Well, I can't do math, so. Or it might have been even 91. So Alicia and I were looking at the numbers, and it's. It should be 91, right? Yeah, 91, yeah. So It's impressive that it's consistently uh, moved forward through a couple of challenges, considering that it's moved locations. We talked about that. Was it Bowling? Was that where it first started? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't, uh, based on the testimonials, I wasn't completely aware of that. I guess even the president of the Dowling had a role in creating it, it sounded like. And um, from what Art said is, you know, a number of the, the board members were involved in getting it set up. But um, I always have a little trouble keeping all of that straight myself, so... I think was Dowling might have been gone by the time you came to Long Island. Yeah, it didn't. You no, know, it definitely was gone. People talked about what Dowling, you know, about Dowling used to be here. That always reminds me of the Rhode Island method of directions. Is like you go down the street, go by, take a right where the Wall Almax used to be, <laughs> and take a left where there used to be an elementary school, and then take a right. That's very fun. Uh, you got to know where all these the things were. Still there. I think Dowling is still there. The, the building. building is still there. Yeah, the buildings it used to be a, what a Vanderbilt estate. We need Chris Kretz to chime in on this. Yes, it was a Vanderbilt. It was his his one of the Vanderbilt summer homes, actually. Oh, right. It's nine, right next to our Bayard um, Cutting Meadow. And he was, and he had the mansion on the other side of the Connecticut River. So yeah, they had to share a backyard. I guess. I guess they had to share the river. It's really beautiful there. Yeah, it is gorgeous. Well, what's really cool about Lilric, and I don't think I don't know that everybody, if you're from Long Island, you you may know this, but if you're obviously if you're not from Long Island, you don't know this. It's a resources council, so you help not just public libraries, but academic libraries, special libraries. You you run the gamut. You really you know hit the whole field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting, and it's always trying to, um, you know, balance the needs of each of those because I have to say, you know, academics and public can be a little bit like oil and water, and, you know, what their needs are a lot different. Trying to address those needs differently can be uh, difficult at times, but I think one thing is a conference like this, I think it appealed to a lot of different groups, especially, you know, the speakers we had today, I think, all types of libraries could find application from these speakers. Well, especially after the pandemic too, we all were kind of thrown into that same tempest where we were all trying to do the same basics of libraries 
you know, library service at the same time, whether you're, whether you're an academic, a public, a special, corporate, there was that commonality that we couldn't go into our buildings or we couldn't reach out to the people who we served and how do we reinvent that? And I think that kind of drew us all back together as a profession. And now as we start to spread back out again and do what we do in our specialties, it, it's going to be interesting to see in another year, year and a half, how all those adaptations have kind of um, mutated for each area of the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know actually when I talked to Brandy, when we're setting up this, this session, she, she was saying that, you know, New York public plans to continue their curbside. Um, and I know that that was a huge thing during the pandemic, especially when they had their buildings closed, but, and they were much later than a lot of Long Island libraries and opening up their buildings. Do you think that's city driven too though, because parking is such a challenge? If, well, if that's what that makes me think about, you know, if that, is really a, there's a f- real strong future role for them in that. I don't, I don't know, but just trying to picture somebody walking down all those steps at NYPL between uh, patients and fortitude carrying your bag of books, <laughs> well, your car idles in traffic. <laughs> I wasn't so much thinking of that, but like, I, I know I've walked by branches like on side streets, you know, down in Soho or where it'd be very easy to do that. Sure. And curbside for them would be walk up as opposed to drive up. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Also, using mass transit or not using mass transit, as it were, and 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 walking the whole time. So the three guests were great. What was really cool about Miguel is that he his perception of how to see the future it wasn't unique, but it was unique because he was. It's almost like what Casey Kasem used to say at the end of his countdown: "Keep your feet on the ground, and keep reaching for the stars." He he was always talking about being centered but yet still keep looking towards that horizon, keep reaching for the stars, keep thinking about the new big thing, keep reading and, and, and don't get uh, discouraged by the, the horribleness of, of the news cycle and, and all that other stuff. I found it really interesting because he was a futurist that was excited about the future, yet still very much grounded. I felt mm-hmm. like he took a kaleidoscope and just shifted it into focus for me. You know, all those little pieces that we weren't aware could make up a picture. Yeah, and it was, for me, a bit of validation because he had studies and actual diagrams outlining what we do. And it was it's nice to, in one way, have in your head, well, we just look at the new stuff and we try to figure out how to do it and how to make it fit in our model. <laughs> and to, But to see that somebody actually came up with a rubric and came up with steps and and a thought process to how to be a futurist and how to think in the future and how to apply it in the, apply that what you think could be the next big thing was really validating for me. Gave us tools as well, which I I took some notes. I thought that was really interesting. He has a, um, a definitive process for gathering and assessing information. And then you had Dr. McNeil who I think was had so much energy and brings so much to the table when it when talking about the different things that they've done at New York Public. Which you know, when she came on the podcast, we were just like bowing because that she was our first New York Public guest. And you know, it's like like you say, you work at New York Public and it's instant celebrity. You know, it's like playing for the Yankees. It really was fun to talk to her about her partnerships with Google and and Apple and how they address 
thinking about the future and how they address thinking about the future and not forgetting anybody or trying not to forget anybody along the way. So that's what they have to have that mission being NYPO. They don't have a choice. They have to be library leaders. Right. You know, they have to come up with the, the ideas and the partners because we're looking at them. Yeah. And their partners aren't, you know, your local pizza shop down the block. It's Apple, it's Google. And, yeah. and the one thing that I found that was really fascinating, we were talking about their partnerships with Google and Apple, teaching kids and adults to code and, and do some of the other cool tech things. They don't bring Google in to teach the classes. They bring Google in to teach the staff to teach the classes. Mm-hmm. So I found that really interesting in that you're not just paying Google $5,000 for 10 lessons and they do it and then they're gone. You actually, they make the staff develop those skills as well. So then when patrons come in and the instructor's not going to be there because they're still working at Google, there's somebody that can address their concerns and help them if they failed. And I thought that was really an interesting model. And we also mm-hmm. talked about finding the, the coalition of the willing that's willing to actually take that training. Oh, that's an interesting, I, that, that's, that's really important. The other thing I was just thinking about and you're talking about some of that training. Um, I don't know if you know about the ARPA grants that are coming, mm-hmm. that are coming out from the state through Millwork. One of the pieces is digital inclusion, and um, we're working with the public systems who are really going to be implementing it. Um, but in conversations with my other colleagues at the other councils, one of the things we're talking about is part of this is digital training and you know getting the staff trained, as you say, with Google. I think one of the things, and maybe you're running into this in your own library, but um, people bringing in technologies like a, a problematic iPad, but uh, I know a lot of libraries have policies about not touching those and not providing that, and that, yet there's a real need for that kind of tech support. And so how do you address that? I mean, it's great, I think, to have people trained by Google and others, you know, to deal with some of the some of the issues, but it makes makes you wonder if there's a gap there now for that kind of. Well, it's always a sticky wicket, um, especially when you're t- dealing with Windows, because Windows is so complex that if you say, oh, well, we'll just wipe it and reinstall Windows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that that's that's always that's always uh, quicksand. Yeah. And there's a huge liability. I understand, you know, if you were to take somebody's laptop and wipe it or even break it further without intent. Well, there's also, there's also the value of data. So even if you were to reinstall windows and then all of a sudden magically the hard drive reformats and they've lost their data, you know, there's something to be said, yeah, we can do that. Absolutely. But you're going to lose your data. So, and so let's say for argument's sake, somebody brings in their windows laptop, say, okay, we can do this, but you're going to lose your data. Oh, okay. That's okay. And then you do it, and they didn't understand what that meant. Yeah. yeah. So how deeply do you have to get it? lawyers involved? It, so the hard thing is establishing ground rules to insulate and indemnify and making a hard thing to a point where library is not going to be liable if something bad happens versus mm-hmm. not doing anything. And now is it a service that – can be offered by the library versus saying you have to go to Best Buy for that one. 
I mean, yeah. and, and and an iPad is a little bit different because, it, I mean, not to get into the semantics of it, but Apple is is curated and controlled by one company where yeah. you're installing a Windows operating system on a Dell laptop versus an HP laptop. And maybe HP has a sp- specific protocol with loading it onto their device and, you know, all that stuff where, you know, you wipe an iPad, you bring it back. It's it's a fairly simple process and you're not going to yeah. have as much data loss so long as it's backed up to the cloud and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting way too technical, but there, there are certain devices where it lends itself towards being easier for somebody who has the skill. And again, it's about training, yeah. uh, but, you but know, the, go ahead. I'm sorry, Tim. Oh, but this yeah, ultimately brings up the question um, without getting into the weeds and cause you, we can go, probably go on and talk forever about that. Um, you know, what's the line for services? Right. You know, and, and is there an industry standard for that? Yeah. The line keeps moving, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it evolves over time as the technology changes. And that's what brings me, you know, back to, you know, like you were talking about with the Google training and things like that. Um, the other issue I think to struggle with, and I don't know if everybody's answered this, but I know some librarians would be concerned about, do you promote those environments? or an Apple environment or Amazon environment, depending on who's providing the training. And it's funny you say that because when I used to teach the iPad iPhone classes, you'd have somebody come in with a Samsung phone. Well, where's my class? Am I yeah. a second class citizen because I have an Android phone? And they wouldn't even understand the distinction of Android. I have a Samsung phone. Why can't I be in this class? Because Apple made that phone. I can't be in here with my phone. So in terms of, yes, you're training. People want to learn because they don't understand it but they really don't understand it. And sometimes it's harder to find somebody. And I'm just using Android Apple as one example. You could also do Apple Windows, Linux, you know, all that stuff, um, where the person who's excluded from that class instantly feels like a second-class citizen. So you can have a library where everybody's on Android, so you do a ton of Android classes and no Apple classes. So there's that dichotomy as well, where, you know, you have to be even-handed. Whenever I help somebody, I'm like, that's a great phone. Android is a solid operating system because it is. And Apple is a solid operating system because it is. BlackBerry, not so much. So, and that's why they're not around. Or Windows Phone, not so much. But, you know, those, when it comes to the mobile tech, and again, not getting into the weeds, but when it comes to mobile tech, this seems to be a little bit more of, um, you know, Red Sox versus Yankees comparison. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to Windows, because you have your loyalties to Dell and HP and Asus and Acer, and there, there's so many other things. And and Windows is a more complicated operating system. Mm-hmm. So where do you go other than the, say uh, go to go to Best Buy? Yeah, without the planned obsolescence of devices and people come in with their iPad One, and I think you know who I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> They don't listen to this podcast. That's a little inside <laughs> joke between me and Sally. Yeah. yeah. Chris used to work at my family's library. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, and they come in and they're like, I can't get my iPad to, to work or update. It's, you know, it's a good place. It's good as a um, paper uh, holder right now. <laughs> you know, so what do you say to them at that point? It's funny you bring that up. That is actually an issue that just popped up this past week. Uh, if you are, have an iPad that is running anything lower than iOS 10, OverDrive and Libby do not work anymore. Yeah, but and, the older devices, you can't update them. 
And the same breath, Android, I think is 2.6 or older, Libyan Overdrive will not work anymore. So we're experiencing it right now where there's this, and I don't know if it's necessarily planned obsolescence because it's just that app uh, or those apps that are services that we provide for free. Uh, I think it's in terms of in in having to update the app and keep it secure yeah. with the, the newer operating systems, there's so much more that needs to go into those apps in order to make them secure and make them functional and add additional functions where to have a legacy version of that app, it's just, it's not viable anymore. And I think mostly it's because of security. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I've seen. Usually it's just not sustainable for the company to maintain apps that far back. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Brandy was great at, at articulating all of those, those great things. And then Stacy, what more can we say about Stacy Aldrich? First of all, she got up at four in the morning to be at this conference. Yeah. <laughs> Not earlier. Yeah. Like our Australian friend, Rob. <laughs> Who was going to bed because it was three in the morning. Yeah, he was so nice to you know, pop his well, head. Yeah, with, with Stacey, I'm really intrigued by the scenario planning because I've never looked at you know strategic planning that way. Um, I think it makes a lot more sense because you know as you get into things, you get these detailed strategic plans. I worked at a number of institutions where we had these 20 page or whatever strategic plans. And then it says, well, this will be our goal. These will be the interim steps in the process to get to that goal. And none of it's followed. It's put on a shelf, you know, things happen. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it's it's um, like any battle plan, you know, it's, it looks great on paper until the first shot is fired, you know, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's just about getting to the goal. It doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah. 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 Whereas I think the scenario planning and others, you, you get strategic directions because it, it reminds me, I attended a, at the ALA online this past June, I attended a, an event, a, a program on strategic plan, and they really did talk about creating strategic directions instead of goals. And so that will guide you on where you're, you're heading and you regularly review those of course and adjust them but um that makes a lot more sense to me um because a goal implies that there's something that you'll automatically achieve now it might be you have a two or three year goal that takes you in that direction with measurable results but um it's also so binary in achieving or not achieving your goal is a win or a fail versus direction yeah, you've made steps towards that direction. And in today's climate, what is your what is an ultimate destination at this point? I mean, if you would have talked about it in 2019, your concept of what your mission statement or goals or what you're looking to achieve had nothing to do with the remote learning, had nothing to do with Zoom. People would be like, "Zoom, yeah, that's the sound you make when you're rolling a matchbox car on the ground." Uh, you know. Everything has changed so much. It, it's I would arguably say it was as transformative as the day after nine eleven, where the, our whole world changed. And it wasn't just like you could make the argument, well, it changed here in New York for nine eleven. It, it changed for the world because of the wars and all that other stuff. But when we have conversations with Rob Thompson down in New South Wales, Australia, or we have conversations with people in England 
like Matt Finch or some of the other people we've had on the podcast, we're all doing it sounds like when I'm preaching in libraries, we're all doing the same thing. We're all stuck in the same spot. The only change or difference is how our governments manage what's happened with the pandemic. So universally, it's affected everybody, but I think it's affected our profession universally as well, because we're all, again, doing the same thing. Whether you're curbside in Sydney, doing Sydney, you know, doing a curbside service there, or whether you're here on Long Island, or whether you're in Washington State, or whether you're in, on one of the islands of Hawaii, you know, it. What's interesting about our profession is we're always doing. We always tend to gravitate towards the same things. And if you were to talk about strategic planning in 2019 versus now, it, it looks completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had kind of a seismic sh- shift, you know, now and. In 2001, these are always um, outside forces that act upon us. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think also part of it, we're, it's not like we have an end date in sight. You know, we thought when these vaccines would come out, maybe that it would mark an end. But we don't know what even I think the new normal is going to look like. I, I think it's still in flux from what I'm seeing. Um, they keep talking about the ends in sight, the ends in sight, and now it's booster shots. And I, I the, honestly, I don't think anybody knows what this, yeah. what, when this is going to end, if it's going to end, or whether it's going to be another shot we get, just like the flu shot. Mm-hmm. It's feeling like that, isn't it? it? It's it is seeming that way, yeah. So, how do you, as an administrator, or as the head of a resources council, how do you look to the horizon, a la Miguel, and say? Mm-hmm. These are these are our goals, or these are the the benchmarks we want to achieve. Not knowing what's at the other end of the crest of the horizon, you know what's what's next for us. You know, it, it, it's, there's there's civil discourse. There's a virus. There's something that we don't know about yet. That's probably a year away. That's going to be the next focus of all of our attention. Um, mm-hmm. So, how can you like the states has a five year plan? Yeah. yeah, five years from now is com- it, the world could look completely different. But we you still know, have to prepare these reports. We don't yeah. have patrons; we have um, members. So I think we're allowed to be a little more nimble. Um, well, yeah, I mean, as a council, we yeah we can certainly be more nimble. And frankly, the the plan of service that's approved for Lilric is I'll have to say is fairly generic, so it gives us more flexibility. And there's a a certain deliberateness to that um, so that we don't, but we have a separate strategic plan. I think the one thing I would do different with hindsight is have strategic directions instead of a plan. So maybe our next plan will look that way more. Um, but I, I was just thinking about, you know, some of the things Miguel was talking about with um, looking at trend lines and stuff. It makes me really wonder instead of looking at a five-year trend line going backwards, Maybe you only look at a two-year trend line because it, depending on how you track it and if you represented it graphically, it might be rather curvy. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those things where you can't look too far back because some of the things you're looking back to are the things that are being held onto for sentiment- sentimentality sake or you know legacy sake and 
leave that to the archivist. Sorry, archivist. Leave that to the archivist. Because if it's not applicable to what you're doing or what your plan is moving forward, why are you holding on to it? That made a lot of sense. And you want to speak on behalf of archivists? Oh, yeah, I worked with an archivist for eight years. Sorry. <laughs> my career. Good job. No, you guessed, uh, no. Chris. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, just archivists are about documenting history. So in some ways it's not completely inaccurate. But um, yeah, I think especially in this environment, we'll have to really do that. And I mean, I still wonder sometimes if, once people feel safe or whatever, if they'll go back to wanting to more in-person stuff and actually move away from Zoom. I mean, right now for Lilric, we're planning to keep on doing, regardless of you know what the CDC says or whatever about safety of people meeting, continuing with the Zoom, or most of the Zoom prep programming because um, there's a lot of good reasons to do that because it's easier for people to get there. But it does make me wonder if we would ever see a downward trend in attendance if we got to a point where people felt safe enough that they would rather gather in person. I'm thinking how many people for the library represents for them socialization versus just making a pumpkin shaped candle. You know, I don't think the candle is necessarily the goal for most people. Uh, a lot of times it's to be with other people doing something fun or interesting. And that's 99% of the answer when we ask people, when we do ask, which isn't that often, say, how come you didn't do hybrid? Because I want to be with the other people. We couldn't wait to get back in our building, which is great. I mean, that's what you want, right? At the end of the day, thinking about pre-COVID expectations, you want that gate count. You want people to come in. You want well-attended programs that are worth the investment. Uh, and it's it, it. I can't speak for every library, but over here, it's happening. That said, I've seen an amazing quantity and quality of take and make for children on uh, social media, on Instagram, where people share the projects that they've sent home for the kids. And you know what? The kids are still doing them socially with their families. So for them, it is about, you know, the uh, the candy apple or whatever. But again, uh, Tim, to your point, looking back, instead of looking back five years, because ultimately, if we're looking back, we're looking at goals that were either met or not met anyway. So if you only look back towards that and maybe look <laughs> towards what processes worked and didn't work, but to go all the way back to, to five years before, it really doesn't make, especially now, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah. Who knows what's going to happen in five years or two years or next week, next week for that matter. So, you know, it was really interesting how Miguel put that all into perspective for us. Those are three great speakers. I think the committee did a great job putting together our 30th annual program on futurists. Yeah. Yep. And that was the goal this year to get three futurists. So. Hit the nail on the head with that, definitely. I did not see one crystal ball. <laughs> no, no, and I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I, I have heard Miguel speak a, a few times now, so I, I knew kind of what he would say. So, fortunate. I hadn't heard. I hadn't heard Brandy McNeil or Stacy. So, yeah, I had seen Brandy um, at. Computers and Libraries, I think it was 20, I want to say either 2017 or 2018, and she was a, a very good speaker. And she was, what I liked about her, and I actually picked up this style from her, she didn't sit at a lectern, she didn't sit at the dais, she literally walked around with a mic. And oh, okay. She almost, she almost did like crowd work in a way, where there was one person 
our colleague that she was presenting with that was up at the um, at the podium, and she was working the crowd and actually like trying to elicit responses from the crowd. And I thought that was really an interesting way to to do a presentation because sitting up mm-hmm. there and yeah. pretending like you're in the appellate court and you're trying not to move and you're just speaking and and clicking the button to move to the next slide, it's not really compelling. She she held. Not only did I remember her name from that, but I remember what she talked about. Ask me about anything else that I went and saw on computers and libraries in 2017 or 2018 that was that compelling. It, it's just not there. And sometimes it's about the speaker as much as it's about the material. So is there anything else you guys wanted to cover? Or I don't know. I have to say I'm feeling pretty tired at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. There's a culmination of a lot of work. Tomorrow we start to plan the next one. But yeah. uh, Chris, I want to thank you and Bob for uh, podcasting this event. It's just such yep. an enriched experience for our attendees yep. and for those who are unable to attend. Well, I thank you. Yeah, and we can probably well, we're planning to be in Beth Page next year. So. Back to the groom suite with the with yes. moving the mirror. <laughs> if you like, All right. <laughs> no, but thanks for giving us the opportunity to do this for now our seventh year being with you. So yeah. it means a lot to us to do this every year, and we're really going to make it thirty. Uh, why not? What do we, what do we got to lose? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. All well, right. thanks again. I appreciate Thank the you. time. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. We have come to the end of another episode of the Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode. Click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.